once again turning in God's Word to the book of Acts. Um, we continue in our series. Uh, we left off with the scattering of believers under persecution in Jerusalem. We saw how Philip uh, went to Samaria preaching Christ, performing miracles. And upon hearing the gospel, witnessing the power of God, uh, we are told that there was great joy in the city. And so we pick up our story here in the midst of the scene as the gospel goes out into Samaria. Philip is preaching and ministering there. Uh, We pick up our text in chapter 8. It's found for you in your bulletins. Uh, You can follow along with me. Acts 8, verses 9 to 25. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you, by your Spirit, would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that we might know you more, that we might see Christ more clearly, that we would understand our sin, but understand your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God's Word uh, can disturb us, can't it? (laughs) Just when you think, I I think I've got this gospel thing down. I get who God is, what the gospel is. Passages like this, uh, a story, a teaching, a prophecy, a psalm, they come along and they sort of shake things up for us a little bit. In it, we have a sorcerer. That alone is pretty remarkable. We have a sorcerer uh, who professes faith, but then is subsequently cursed by Peter, and finally with whom we don't really know exactly what became of him. 
though I think there's some indication, and there's a lot of actually extra-canonical writings about Simon. He's a very popular figure in the post-apostolic period, um, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in other words, we have a really odd story. Here was a man who is baptized, who professed faith, and yet, from what we read in the text, seems to exhibit nothing of true faith. It's a disturbing text. Um, it brings up questions like, can you lose your salvation? I've heard that question before. Texts like this brings that up. How do I know if someone has true faith or is just feigning faith? It's another question we ask. And maybe the most disturbing of all the questions is, how do I know I have true faith and am not feigning faith? It's a disturbing text in many ways. There was a young seminarian I met with over the years uh, who'd regularly come to me with doubts about his faith. And he'd often bring up these characters in the Bible. He'd bring up persons like Saul and Judas and Simon and ask me, Rob, how do I know I'm not like one of these men? In their own minds, they thought they were believers. A text like this can be disturbing because it challenges our hearts. It exposes our sin and the sin that we see on display here is the, the sin of covetousness, of jealousy. And who among us here, if we're honest, hasn't ever struggled with covetousness and jealousy? I have. Well, as disturbing as this text is, it's also full of the gospel hope. There's a certainly, there is a warning here. We can't get away from that. Uh, there's no place for jealousy among God's people. And that jealousy and covetousness ultimately lead to captivity, uh, captivity of our heart, and they lead to, to, to bitterness. But the text also reminds us of the good news, that it's free. That in turning from sin, turning to Jesus, there is not just is it free, but there is great freedom and great joy. In other words, contentment and joy come from Christ, but bitterness from jealousy of others. So that's where I want us to land today. But before we land there, I'm unf unfortunately have to do a little bit of work, and I want you to bear with me. Uh, I need to discuss some of the more challenging theology in this text, because if I don't do that, it'll be there niggling in your mind, and it will distract, I think, ultimately um, from where I, want, where I think is important for us to go. Um, and there are some challenging things in the text, and I don't want us to get hung up there. And I also think that the theology of the text, as it unfolds, will help us to better understand what's going on in the story. So, let's jump in on some of these challenges in our text. The first theological challenge I want to address in the text revolves around the pouring out of the Spirit by the Apostles. Now, you don't get hung up on... Some of you may not be hung up on this at all, but some of you might... This might be a real question for you. And particularly what I'm referring to is the statement in verses 14 to 17. It says, Now when they, the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What's going on? 
The kind of questions that stick in our minds are these. Did the believers in Samaria not have the Holy Spirit yet? Was it, did they not enjoy that fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Isn't the Holy Spirit necessary for faith? How could they believe if they didn't have the Holy Spirit? Is there some kind of second blessing of the Holy Spirit that's necessary before one can be truly baptized, not just baptized with water? These are the kind of questions that come out of our text. Is this a paradigm that all churches should follow and expect to happen? There are traditions, there are denominations that revolve around a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I just need to be clear about that. So as we come to a theological challenge like this, there are a few interpretive keys that are helpful to remember. And these are keys that you can apply across the board to any passage you come to. And I I want you to, if you have a pen or pencil, you can write this down because I think they're helpful as you study God's Word on your own. First, narrative is not normative. That's a very quick and you know, jingly way of saying that while narrative may share something that happens normally, it just as often shares us shares with us the extraordinary, the peculiar, or the particular. Okay? So just as narrative may show us something that is the normal routine, it also oftentimes shows us stuff that is peculiar or particular. That's the first key. The second key to, to interpreting Scripture that I want to unfold, there's others, but this is the second one. Context is king. These ring off, right? So narrative is not necessarily normative, and context is king. We have to ask how this passage fits in with the surrounding passages, as well as within the particular book. And then third, Scripture interprets Scripture. They call this in in theology classes the rule of faith. Um, We ought never to take a text in isolation, but see how it relates to the rest of God's Word. This will keep us from error. So these three interpretive keys, I think, are helpful. And if we apply these interpretive keys to the question of what's going on with the Holy Spirit in the text, I think we'll get a clearer explanation or understanding of what's going on. First, narrative isn't normative. What we see here is the particular activity of the apostles. Right? Philip was able to perform quite amazing acts of God. He performed healings and exorcisms. But he was not able to bring about the Holy Spirit. This, it seems, was something particular to the apostolic witness. There's a connection between the work of the apostles and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this brings us to the question of context. Remember the book of Acts has been traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles. One theologian said a better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's a story about God's Spirit at work in the church. And He is the central figure of the Trinity, who is Christ, of course. It's His Spirit that He sends. We see that at the very beginning. The Spirit came to Jerusalem with manifestations of flaming tongues and miraculous speaking in foreign language. You remember that from chapter 1. Well, just subsequent to our text... um, Uh, or just, yeah, before our text, we learned that the church was being scattered for the expansion of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Do you remember? Jesus had said, you are going to be my witnesses. You're going to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this is kind of like the next move. God's the persecution came, the, 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 the Christians scatter, and they go to where? Samaria. 
the first expansion of the church beyond Jerusalem. And so the Spirit's manifestation was a sign of that expansion. It was particular, it was peculiar to this age of the apostles. It was a sign that God was moving out to the ends of the earth. And later on, this similar thing happens in Ephesus. Later on in the book of Acts, we'll see the same thing happen as the Spirit descends on the Ephesian church as a sign of the ends of the earth being reached by the apostolic witness. Finally, and this is the third interpretive key, we know from John 3, in Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus, that the Spirit's work is necessary for regeneration. So it wasn't as if these believers who professed faith in Christ had no experience of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been at work in their hearts, transforming them. Giving them the eyes to see and the heart to love and trust in Christ. We can also go back to Ezekiel Ezekiel and the Psalms of David to see how the Spirit's presence is necessary for anyone to be saved. So here in our text, the people who truly believed and were baptized with water were saved. They had indeed been transformed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Right? I know that was a lot of explanation to get at the, the theological uh, stuff underneath this, but I just wanted to point out uh, that what's going on here is a unique pouring out of the Spirit during the apostolic period as a testament or a witness to the work of the Spirit in bringing the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. There's a second theological challenge in our text, and I'm, 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 hopefully I'm not burdening you too much, but I want us to, to, to understand these things. The nature of belief as expressed by Simon the magician, right? We're told that he believes and that he is baptized. And the two theological challenges aren't unrelated. The challenge of what's going on with the Spirit and the question of what's going on in Simon's heart. The question is, what is the nature of saving faith? What's going on uh, in the hearts of people? You see, Simon experienced both the profession of faith, the baptism of water, as well as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You would think that if anyone was saved, it would be the one who experienced these three things. That, that he, of all people, would have been one counted as those who have experienced the saving grace of God. Yet our text leaves us not with a little bit of doubt to, to regards to the salvation of Simon. Peter's words to him are some of the harshest in all of Scripture. And I would, in fact, argue that we have seen no sign of repentance by the end of the text of Simon indicating that he had saving faith. We, of course, don't know the end of the story, what God would do in his life. So what is the nature of his faith? Did he fall from grace? Did he lose his salvation? Again, those three interpretive keys. Narrative is not necessarily normative, but narrative often shows us, through these weird particular cases, things common to all humanity. Simon exemplifies a particular form of unbelief, doesn't he? Um, We see this all the time, unfortunately. People who profess faith walk away from the Lord. And we look back and we say, even men, godly men, pastors, professors, men who had spent their whole lives studying God's Word and proclaiming the Gospel, and then 
we look at the news and we see they've walked away. It rattles your faith. It rattles my faith. How can this be? And this is an example of that kind of unbelief that's too common. So what's remarkable about Simon in context is that he stands out as one who is not transformed. Everybody else is receiving the gospel with joy. They're believing and putting their faith and trust in Jesus. There is this work of God that is is happening, that is vibrant. And yet here's a man who is trying to buy his way into power. But hasn't this been the story of the book of Acts all the way through? Gross, or gross in the best sense of the word, big works of the Holy Spirit, powerful transformation of lives, and in the midst of that, massive opposition to the gospel. And Simon stands again as one like that. And interpreting Scripture with Scripture is probably the most important key to understanding Simon's faith. The Scripture is full of examples of people who are visibly connected to the people of God, but who do not enjoy true fellowship with God. Do you remember the, the story of the sheep and the goats with Jesus, right? Remember that? He, he tells this parable about sheep and goats. And the sheep and the goats represented the two sort of eternal characters of those who are being saved and those who are being damned. Those were the, the two trajectories. And the goats came to him and were like, Lord, Lord, we, you know, we've been following you. They represented those religious leaders who had all the outward signs of being connected to the people of God and yet whose hearts were far from him. We also know from Scripture that true saving faith is a gift of God, as Paul says in Ephesians. And it will bear fruit to eternal life. Jesus, when He saves, He saves. He does not... You cannot pull yourself from Him. You wouldn't want to because He's at work in you and His his Spirit is, is holding you tight. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you to the very end of the age. This is the words of Jesus that he is, he is our Savior. And because He's powerful and He's God, He never lets us go. So what is the nature of Simon's faith? I believe it was feigned. That is, it was pretend. It was put on. It wasn't faith at all. So why did he feign faith? Because, this is why, he was impressed with power. And that brings me to the heart of what I want us to think about this morning. And there are two thoughts. One is, desire for power and prestige will make you jealous and bitter. If those are your aims, if you, if you want power and prestige and you're, you're looking for the church as the answer to gaining power and prestige, you will be jealous and bitter. And ultimately, I believe that you will find yourself, as the, the Apostle Peter, uh, trapped. He, he uses the language uh, here. He says, um, he says, For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond. You're in bondage to iniquity. But the second point that I want to unfold, and these are just the last two things I want to talk about. First, desire, power, and prestige will make us jealous and bitter. Secondly, contentment is found in Christ. 
contentment is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we know of Simon from our text? Let's just look here. We're told some pretty remarkable things, aren't we? Uh, For some time he practiced magic and he amazed the people. People followed him. We're told that the magic was... uh, It wasn't like... uh, a magic trick, but we aren't told exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just doing parlor tricks. I, I, I sort of envision, um, do you remember when Moses went to Egypt and he was telling Pharaoh to let his people go? And in the midst of that, uh, there were uh, Egyptian magicians who would do signs and wonders, pretty, pretty amazing things. These were not just some charlatans. They were, they were, they were powerful. And I, and I get the sense from the text that this is the kind of power that this man, Simon, had. Um, and it brought him some, some fame, notoriety. Uh, remember last week how I mentioned the word great? Remember that? Remember, anybody remember what the word in Greek, kind of the root is? Mega? I can't help but thinking of Mega Man. It's from my childhood. Um, But anyway, here he's described as great over and over again. If we look at the text, it says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he himself was somebody great. He was a Mega Man. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, same word, saying this man is the power of God that is called Great! Over and over and over again, this word, Luke is playing with this language here, he's playing with this word of greatness. Um, in fact, everyone, it says, from the least to the greatest, was saying that he was the very power of God called great. In other words, there's the greatest, and then there's Simon. Right? There was the greatest, and then there was Simon. And what's remarkable is that the people even associated him with God. It's an astounding thing. He is, he is the sort of visible picture of the very power of God on earth. We also know some things that are not from our text that you had, do not have in front of you. Uh, some of the, the, the sort of post-apostolic period, period writers uh, spent a lot of time sort of dwelling on Simon. I think he was a pretty big figure of the day. And I don't know what ha- ended up happening to him exactly, but some of the early post-apostolic writing called him the head of a Gnostic sect called the Simonians. Um, they associated with this Simon. Other writers pit him as the adversary of Peter, even having a, at some point he and Peter having a contest of power, uh, which Simon loses. This is all sort of beyond the scope of Scripture. And there's quite a bit of literature about Simon, and though we don't verify it all as true, what we know, what it tells us, is that he was a very significant character, a significant man. And finally, we know that he was impressed with power. We're told that when Philip started to preach and perform miracles, that even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So there was the people, the greatest of all. Then there was Simon. But then in Simon's mind, there was Philip. And he wanted some of that. He wanted a piece of that. In fact, it goes on in 18 to 19, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power. He sees the apostle, he says, Give me what you have. 
so that I too can lay hands on people and people will see my power. It's at this point that his true heart is exposed. You see, Simon wasn't truly interested in the good news of Jesus, that Jesus could save him from his sin. What he saw Jesus as was another avenue of power. And the church was another avenue for gaining prestige. It was a place for him. You see, he was losing his disciples, right? They were starting to go after Philip and this person, Jesus. And he's like, wait a minute. And yes, Philip is doing these amazing power, power that I don't even have. And then when he saw the apostles laying on hands, he thought, that's the kind of power that I need. Then, then people will follow me. And I will be well-respected and well-known. And so what does Peter do? Peter calls him out. The ESV renders it, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain a gift of God with money. There's a more sort of direct quote. It could be translated this way, and you can fill in the blank yourself, but it said, To destruction with you and your silver. You, you fill in, you change the words out yourself. And that would be as equal as faithful a rendering of the text. That's a strong condemnation. And it's from this text that we get the term simony. We have an English word for for this. It's called simony. What is simony? Uh, It's a distasteful thing. Uh, It is the buying and selling of ecclesiastical privileges. There's nothing more distasteful. Right? When somebody in the church hands money to somebody else to gain power and prestige. We look on that with disdain. But it's what Peter says next that highlights Simon's heart. He says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter warns him that his heart is not right, and therefore he ought to repent. And his reason is that Simon is in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That's a strange word, gall. You know, we use it often like this. He had such gall to do that thing. And what we mean by that is sort of a disrespectful boldness, right? Like if somebody does something that is really not their place to do and they do it, that's like a disrespectful boldness. That's not what gall means in this case. Right? Gold means something different in this case. Uh, it is, uh, this is maybe a better way of putting it. Uh, it is a deeply vexed or annoyed by something. Just to have gall is to be deeply vexed or annoyed by something. And it's this second definition that's associated with bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness and resentment stem from that deep vexation, that deep annoyance that someone has something you don't have. Isn't that jealousy? When you get so... It eats you alive. How could they have this thing and not me? What right... This isn't fair. You know, when we were kids in a playground, what this would look like is something unfair would happen. And then your friend would say, that's not fair. Well, you're not allowed to play with my Legos anymore. 
Or I'm taking my ball and going home. It's not fair. Bitterness is vindictive. Peter describes it as being in the bond of iniquity. Simon was stuck, bound in sin. And maybe of all sins, jealousy and covetous owns us. Right? It eats at us. We, we can't get out of it. All we think about is how somebody has something I don't have, or they have a position I don't have, and, and it just eats at us until it comes out as this gall of bitterness, this anger and resentment, and it's not fair. what makes Simon partic- Simon's particular form so heinous is that it blinded him to the gospel. He saw the seeming benefits of having power and prestige associated with the apostles, something he had once had. The power he didn't recognize was not in these men, but in Christ. In Christ who came to save As I reflected on this passage with regard to the church, I could think of very few things more destructive in the life of the church than the desire for some to have power over others or to gain position. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, but it's terrible. Early in my ministry, even before I was ordained, um, there was a young man, just about my age, maybe a little bit younger than me, um, he was in seminary. I had just was finishing seminary and I was interning at a church. He had such zeal for the gospel. All he wanted to do was go out and evangelize. He's the kind of guy you wanted to connect with because he, was, he had a lot of like, heart and energy. But there was a slow drip. He just constantly complained. Because I, for whatever reason, got all the, the positions. And it wasn't even positions, really. It was just... I worked with youth. I did ministry that was asked of me. But he couldn't handle it. That resentment and bitterness stuck in him so deep that he had eventually abandoned the faith altogether. Not just abandoned the faith, but he tore up his family, left his wife, destroyed everything in his sight. Because life was not fair. It's a man who was training for the gospel ministry. When I think about the very nature of the church, the very nature of the gospel, it is fundamentally about the very opposite of power and prestige. It's about laying our lives down one for another. It's about the power of God. It's about Christ. Our cry ought to be like that of John the Baptist. May I decrease that he might increase as he pointed to Jesus. Paul, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But right before that, he talks about the works of the Spirit. He says, uh, the works of the Spirit, or the works of the flesh. And he says these things are idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Do you see how much of that revolves around this issue of the gall of bitterness because you don't have place? Rivalries, divisions, fits of anger, jealousy, strife, enmity. These are the works of the flesh. 
There is no place for such things within the body. These are the things that destroy both the individual and the church. And this is where I want to conclude. How do we guard our hearts against such attitudes? The answer is to find our contentment in Christ. It's the only place. For the, all the focus on Simon, I want us to be reminded of a few things in the text that bring us gospel comfort. One, we have to remember that while Simon was great and powerful, who is more so? God. The gospel, right? Simon stands pale in comparison. If the least to the greatest look to Simon, and Simon all of a sudden, they turn from Simon to look to what the works of God was doing through the person of Philip. God is greater. The gospel is more powerful. God is great. Not Simon. They received the sign of the Holy Spirit. They weren't raised to greatness in and of themselves, but greatness came to them. God met them where they were. God came down and said, You are not a great people, but I'm going to make you great because you are mine. And you will be raised up in glory and you will sit as a child of God, enjoying all the benefits of Christ, heirs according to the covenant promises. You see, they didn't find their hope in their own power, their own prestige, their own place. They found their contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a second thing that will help us find contentment in Christ. It's recognizing who we are. Broken sinners. We don't deserve power and prestige. We ultimately deserve condemnation. I don't think it is possible to be content until we realize firstly of our actual position before God. And we're honest that life isn't fair. That we aren't getting what we do deserve which is the wrath and curse of God. But we aren't left in that estate, are we? Jesus came not to only wipe away the iniquity to which we were in bondage, but He clothes us in glorious righteous robes. We are declared sons of the Most High, heirs of the covenant. We enjoy all the benefits of Christ, benefits not only that we don't deserve, we, we don't deserve them, but we enjoy them despite what we do deserve. There's no warrant for jealousy or bitterness or rivalry or conceit in the church. This contentment, though, in Christ as we rest knowing that we are sons of the Most High, we find great joy. Remember, that's, that's where the text actually, right, follow, right before this stuff on sorcery, uh, we learn this. Verse 8 of chapter 8, it's not in your bulletins, but it's the verse right before all this stuff about Simon. 
says that now there were those who were scattered, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he heard when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had left them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. We find our hope and rest and contentment in Jesus our Savior and the power of the gospel. We find hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace this morning. We thank you that though you were great, you humbled yourself and you came and you died. And you did that for broken sinners. And though we deserved your wrath, you poured out your love for us on the cross. Help us to find rest and contentment and joy in Jesus. Keep us from bitterness, jealousy, resentment. And help us to point not to ourselves, but to others. Point others to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.